this morning. It's a blessing to be able to do this. Um, we're thankful to hear the, the great reports from Scott, and we look forward to seeing him back in the pulpit next week. Before I, I jump into the sermon, I, I do want to call attention back. I think we got the graphic one more time. So I think there's, there's been a little bit of confusion, um, so I, I want to clear that up first. So we are having a missions conference next weekend, next Saturday morning, during the service next week, as well as Sunday evening. But the focus of this missions conference is actually going to be some evangelism training. We've recognized that just as a church, uh, we need some training just in practically how can I share my faith? How can I share the gospel with the people in my life? And so we are devoting this year's missions conference to that. I think it's going to be really good. The outreach has been planning it for a while now. And I think you're going to be really blessed by coming as well as just more equipped to be more effective in, in sharing Christ with those in your lives who don't know the Lord. So I did want to tell about that real quick. And this kind of is a lead up to that. So I'm going to be talking a little bit about evangelism today. And, you know, I get asked to speak on that sometimes. And every time I'm asked to speak on that, often I feel unworthy. And one of the reasons I feel unworthy was because one of the first seminary classes I ever took I'm about halfway through my degree right now, but but one of the first ones I ever took was on evangelism. Uh, if you don't know me, I, I work for Campus Outreach. I get paid to do evangelism, um, and the, the one of the first seminary classes I ever took was on evangelism. I got a C minus in. Okay, you're not supposed to get C minuses in seminary classes like ever, and I get a C minus in the class that was on something that I should have been able to do on the backstroke. So. That happened, so I, I kind of feel unworthy. I've always felt a little bit insecure about that, but it is true. The biggest reason I, I often feel unworthy is, is just because I, I knew who I was apart from Jesus. And, and just in his own divine mercy, for, for whatever reason, my freshman year of college, when I was full of doubts, when I was living hypocritically, when I had no love for Jesus in my heart, at Samford University, a Baptist university that everybody's supposed to know the Lord at, I just happened to run into two of maybe the ten people on campus who were actually sharing the gospel. And God, in his sovereign mercy, used, used their words and used their lives to draw me to himself. I don't deserve that. I don't deserve that. But I'm, I'm so grateful to be here this morning. And my prayer, one of my prayers has been that if there's anybody in attendance today who, who doesn't yet have that relationship with Christ, that he might even use the words from his word today to do that. But we are going to talk a little bit about evangelism from our text today. I want to, I want to start off just asking this question. What would you say, just when you think about our culture, when I say culture, I'm specifically talking about like our community, our, the country. What would you say is the largest demographic of non-Christians? Have you ever thought about that? Is it atheists? Is it Mormons? I talked to those guys a pretty good bit. No, I don't, I don't think it's either. Do you guys know that 70% of the United States still identifies as Christian? 70%. That's the whole U.S. So the Bible Belt, particularly the small town Bible Belt, that number is going to be astronomically more. But yet study after study after study shows an incredibly small percentage of those people who identify as Christian actually have Christian beliefs, actually have Christian affections, actually have Christian lifestyles that doesn't match up with what the Bible says it actually means to be a Christian. 
There's a great book that came out last year. It's one of the better books on evangelism I've ever read, actually. I heartily commend it to you. It's called The Unsaved Christian by a pastor down in Florida named Dean and Sarah. And he says he's talking about Bible Belt ministry. He says this. He says, in the Bible Belt, identifying as a Christian is a way of life. But sadly, believing the gospel and following Jesus are often not. Image matters here. Being seen as a Christian can be more important than actually being a Christian. The southern dilemma is, I believe in Jesus, but truly surrendering to him would interfere with my life. See, guys, we're talking about evangelism. What we're talking about is sharing the message of Jesus with non-Christians in hopes that they will become Christians. And we've got to understand that when we're talking about evangelism in our context, most of what we're talking about is evangelizing people who already call themselves Christians. And that produces some unique and incredible challenges. And and I'm hopeful that today, as well as this conference next weekend, will equip us with that. But I'm just going to give a shocking statement here at the beginning, okay? This is just going to get your attention, okay? Faithful evangelism is successful 100% of the time. Just that marinate a little bit. Faithful evangelism is successful 100% of the time. Now, I know there's some of you who are in here who say, I've been faithful to share the gospel before, and that person did not stop following Jesus, so what you just said is wrong. You're an idiot. No wonder you got a C- in evangelism. Why do you get paid to do this? Right? But I'm just going to stay that there. We're going to come back to that, but bear, bear with me here. Let's pray. Lord, I just do pray that, that you would use the truth of your word to transform hearts, to make us love you more, and to make us more effective witnesses for you. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. So we're going to be in John chapter 3 today. It's a a really famous story of of Jesus' interaction with a guy named Nicodemus. Um, But as always, when we're we're reading Scripture, we need to know the context in order to be able to read it rightly. So I'm going to look back a little bit first. In chapter 2, verses 1 through 12, we see the story of the wedding at Cana. That's the place where Jesus performed his first miracle of turning water into wine. And when that happened, he wowed lots of people because he, he, he extended their party, right? And he actually gained a lot of what I would call fringe followers from that. A lot of people were wowed by it, but they ended up leaving him a couple chapters later in chapter 6 when he said some hard words they didn't want to hear. Later on in that chapter, uh, in chapter 2, starting in verse 13, you see Jesus walk into the temple And he sees that the temple's actually been turned into a marketplace during Passover. And so Jesus, just filled with righteous anger, makes a couple whips and starts driving all the money changers out. You kind of see the state of the religion of that day in that. It was mingled with so much worldliness. It was mingled with so much just corrupt desire for financial gain. There was such little faithfulness to God's word. Can the church today relate to that? the obsession with entertainment that plagues the church today. Financial corruption in pulpits we hear all the time. The influence of of pagan thought, even the new age, into the modern American church. And less and less and less biblical faithfulness to teaching God's word. So those things happened. And then right at the end of chapter 2, to kind of set the stage for chapter 3, it says that many people had come around Jesus for the signs they saw him do for the blessings they saw him giving people. But it said he knew what was in their hearts. The wedding at Cana, the feeding of the 5,000, 
the many healings he was performing. Jesus was really popular at this point. But by the end, most had left him. And we see at the beginning of Acts, after Jesus had ascended into heaven, he only had 120 followers left on earth. Because that's what happens when people come to Jesus for what he can give them instead of coming to him to worship him for who he is. And so now we come to chapter 3, and we get this zoomed-in picture of a man named Nicodemus who was buying the hype around Jesus, but he was totally missing him. For our purposes today, I'm going to call Nicodemus a cultural Christian. So here we go. Nicodemus, the story of Nicodemus from John chapter 3. Now there was a man of the Pharisees named Nicodemus, a ruler of the Jews. This man came to Jesus by night and said to him, Rabbi, we know that you're a teacher come from God, for no one can do these signs you do unless God is with him. So just in these first two verses, Nicodemus is going to reveal his heart and he's going to reveal some barriers that stand between him and Jesus. You see in verse 1 it says, he's a man of the Pharisees. In that we see there was a religious barrier Because the Pharisees were a sect of Jewish religious leaders who were very prominent during Jesus' time. They'd actually rose to power during the 400 years between the Old Testament and the New Testament where there hadn't been a fresh word from the Lord. Their teaching severely departed Scripture, mostly because they elevated their own historic tradition to the level of authority that only Scripture had. Sound like the church in the South at all? Right? They sought praise from men, and they sought to be made right with God through outward observance of religious rituals, washings, fastings, public prayer, giving. The Pharisees, their their religious barrier is kind of like the, the cultural Christian that says, I'm a Christian because of my family heritage. I'm a Christian because at one point I, I prayed a prayer, I got baptized, I had a religious experience. I'm relatively moral, decent church attendance. But yet that person's belief and that person's affections and that person's life in no way match up to what God's word says it means to be a real Christian. So there was a religious barrier that the Pharisees had. There was also a status barrier. Look then, it says he was also a ruler of the Jews. So he wasn't just some run-of-the-mill religious teacher. He also had some position of power, some position of influence, some position of prestige over the common folks. So we have this devout religious ruler who was an impressive man. He was an upstanding citizen. Guys, this is a guy Redeemer Church would want, right? We would want this guy to lead Sunday school. We would want this guy to teach Bible studies. We definitely want this guy to tithe, right? This guy had a status barrier. This is the cultural Christian who, who looks good. He's impressive to the world. If he's not powerful, at least he's respected. And all's good in this guy's life, so therefore he must be good with God. Nicodemus also had a comfort barrier. Look at what it says in verse 2. It says he came to Jesus by night. You remember at the beginning how he said Christianity in the South often says, I believe in Jesus, but if I surrender to him, that would interfere with my life. Well, Nicodemus had an interest in Jesus, right? He stayed up late. He made the trek to wherever Jesus was. He was friendly with Jesus. Most of the Pharisees wouldn't have done this. The Pharisees in the Gospels are pictured as the enemies of Jesus. Whenever Jesus tells parables, 
that have good guys and bad guys in them, the Pharisees are always the examples of the bad guys. Luke 15, Luke 18, etc. So there's something that seems impressive about this guy. But he came at night. Because he realized that it would cost him socially, it would cost him relationally, probably even cost him financially to publicly identify with Jesus. So he came at the most comfortable time for him. He came to Jesus on his terms because he wasn't yet willing to yield his life to Jesus. This is the cultural Christian that says, I'll follow Jesus as long as he lets me live the life that I want to live. As long as Jesus doesn't intersect with my family or my future or my finances or my sexuality or my weekends. Also in verse 2, you see Nicodemus' first words to Jesus. He said this, that we know that you're a teacher sent from God, for no one can do the signs that you do unless God's with you. Now listen, he's right about that. Jesus was a teacher sent from God. The signs that Jesus performed did testify to his divine nature. But don't you remember what we just read about the wedding at Cana? Don't you remember what we just read? about the heart of man, that there were many people who were wowed by the crazy things that Jesus was doing for people. And then they left. I think Nicodemus is showing right here that he thinks Jesus had something up his sleeve for him. So he had a religious barrier, he had a status barrier, he had a comfort barrier, and he had a benefit barrier. He came to Jesus for how Jesus could benefit him. This is the cultural Christian that sees Jesus as the latest fad to get what that person wants. But yet, when something better comes along, he goes away. Or when suffering comes, he goes away. This is the cultural Christian that loves what he thinks Jesus gives him. Peace, forgiveness, purpose, maybe even therapy or prosperity. But he loves the gifts. He doesn't love the giver. There's no love. There's no awe. There's no worship. Guys, Nicodemus shows us a picture of the rebellious heart of man. Nicodemus shows us a picture of the shallow belief of the people at Cana. He shows us a picture of a corrupt temple that needed to be cleansing. He showed us a picture of cultural Christianity. He kind of seems like a seeker, right, because he came to Jesus, but he's not. We don't see a seeker. We see a wicked, vile, corrupt heart. It's not too hard for us to identify with, is it? Because Nicodemus' barriers describe so much of my life before I knew Jesus. I grew up in cultural Christianity. I had religion in my life. I was fairly upstanding. But I was evil. I grew up with a, with a verbal profession of faith, but affections that didn't match. I was a hypocrite. I did what I wanted to do when I wanted to do it. And the religion that was in my life, honestly, a lot of the time, I I grew up going to a private school for a while. I used it for selfish gain. Nicodemus's guys are our primary mission field in the South in some way, shape, or form. It's not the atheists. It's not the Muslims. It's not the Mormons. Those people certainly exist. But our primary mission field is those who profess Jesus with their lips, but their hearts are far from him. 
like many of us once were. And what we're about to see Jesus do is he's about to cleanse the temple again, except this time the temple's a person, and he's going to do that with a message that we need so badly. In verse 3, here's what happens. Jesus answered him, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Nicodemus said to him, How can a man be born when he's old? Can he enter a second time into his mother's womb and be born? Jesus answered, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born of water and the Spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. That which is born of the flesh is flesh, and that which is born of the Spirit is spirit. Do not marvel that I said to you, you must be born again. The wind blows where it wishes and you hear its sound, but you do not know where it comes from or where it goes. So it is with everyone who is born of the Spirit. So Jesus said, unless one is born again, that can also be translated born from above, he cannot see the kingdom of God. So Nicodemus almost starts flattering Jesus, and Jesus just cuts him off because Jesus knew what was in his heart. And he makes this radical statement about man's nature. Our circles today would call it total depravity. Because Nicodemus and religious people think this way, that man is basically good. That man just needs a little help, a little correction, a little boost to be all that he could be, or maybe even to get to heaven. And what Jesus basically says to Nicodemus, he says, you don't need correction of one little ugly part of you. You need renovation of the whole thing. Actually, not renovation. You need demolition and something new to be built. You must be made new. And he uses the graphic, ugly language of birth to emphasize that. You need to be made into something totally different than you were to enter the kingdom. And when Jesus even when he says enter the kingdom, he's not just talking about getting to heaven one day. The kingdom of God starts now in the lives of his people. It's this idea that when you enter the kingdom, your spiritual life starts. You were once dead, then you're made alive. You enter the kingdom, and more and more and more you're made like Jesus until one day you see the kingdom in its fullness. He says you must be born again. And Nicodemus doesn't understand. He asks, how can a man be born when he's old? He doesn't understand the metaphor. Because cultural Christianity is blindness. It doesn't understand the need for a savior. It's a man-made religion. It's not born from above. And Jesus very patiently answers him, unless one is born of water and the spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. So what Jesus does here is he points Nicodemus back to this Old Testament passage that he should have known. He's a teacher of Israel. This is one of the most prominent passages about the Messiah to come, about the age to come in the Old Testament. And Jesus has to point Nicodemus to this when he doesn't understand what he's talking about. This from the book of Ezekiel 36. God promises, I will sprinkle clean water on you, and you shall be clean from all your uncleannesses, and from all your idols I will cleanse you. And I will give you a new heart and a new spirit I will put within you. And I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. And I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes and be careful to obey my rules. See, guys, water, when Jesus said you must be born of water and a spirit, water was a metaphor. It was a metaphor of the Holy Spirit working in somebody, doing transforming work in converting a sinner to Jesus. And in John's gospel, he actually makes frequent connection between water and the Holy Spirit. He's going to do it in the next chapter of the story of the woman at the well. He's going to do it again in chapter 7. 
Basically what Jesus is saying is this. Everything in you, all of your desires, all of your focuses, all of your affections, they got to be taken out. They got to be transformed and replaced with God's ones. We need new hearts. Verse 6, Jesus says, that which is born of the flesh is flesh. There's nothing in natural man that's not polluted by sin and that doesn't ultimately result in condemnation before God. He says, that which is born of the Spirit is spirit. When God sheds His grace on a sinner and converts that heart, it results in new life now. And the ultimate result, no condemnation one day when we stand before the Lord. So being born again, we've heard that phrase before, haven't we? It's a very popular phrase. But according to the author of the term, right? According to the guy who said it first, it's what we call the doctrine of regeneration. The idea of God transforming what is dead into life. It's when the Holy Spirit comes and he replaces the old nature, the way we think, the way we desire, the commitments we have, the lifestyle we live. He replaces that heart to where we hate the darkness that we once loved and walked in. It does not mean perfection. It does not mean perfection. The very next chapter, when Jesus is talking to the woman at the well, he says, he calls it living water. He says, this living water is going to well up to eternal life, right? It's a process, right? We get more and more like Jesus, like Paul said in 1 Corinthians 3, verse 18. But when a person is truly converted to Christ, God takes out the heart of stone, puts in a heart of flesh, puts his spirit within. It means that a heart that was once dead in hatred of God now truly loves and worships Jesus. He's not that cultural Christian that's just religious and has status and has comfort and comes to Jesus for what he can give him. Isn't that beautiful? Guys, uh, uh, the Lord, of his own free grace, breathed life into our hearts that we're not looking for him. We were not desiring it. Just like in the movie The Sixth Sense, we were walking around with people, and we didn't even know we were dead. And he comes in, and he radically transforms our heart from death to life. He draws us to himself, and we couldn't say no even if he wanted to because that's how beautiful he became to us. Now, how does that square with the cultural Christianity of the Bible Belt? Again, born again, that's a term a lot of people have heard. Many people in our culture would even identify with in the cultural Christian way. The Barna Group, which is a a Christian polling organization that, that tries to spot trends in the church. Um, They try to figure out kind of percentages of quote-unquote born-again Christians who say different things. But I want you to listen to how this Christian pollster group identifies what it means to be born again. He says this, born-again Christians are defined as people who say they have made a personal commitment to Jesus Christ that is still important in their life today and who also indicated that they believe that they will die, that when they die they will go to heaven because they had confessed their sins and accepted Jesus as their Savior. So basically, at some point, I decided to get saved. My spiritual walk is still important to me, and because of this decision that I made in the past, I'm going to heaven. Modern definition of being born again. Does sound like what the author of the term meant in John 3. 
Because if that's what it means to be born again, that requires zero affection change, zero life change, zero repentance. Jesus goes on to say in in verse 7 that the wind blows where it wishes and no one knows where it comes from, right? So it is with everyone who's born of the Spirit. See, the the cultural Christian definition of being born again, it's worldly. It's measurable. I did this. I get this. Jesus says, "Uh uh-uh. It's a supernatural work. You can't measure it. That's why he compares the Holy Spirit's work to wind, right? Nicodemus and religious people like him want so much less from Jesus than what he gives people. And Jesus reveals the supernatural heart change that Nicodemus and all true Christians must have to be saved. It's supernatural. It can't be explained by human conventional wisdom. That's why Saul became Paul, right? That's why the prominent persecutor of Christians became its greatest apologist and evangelist. That's why all the stories you hear of people who had radical changes that are real happened. That's why my friend Brad, who mentored me, when he was dying from cancer one month away from his death at age 33, leaving a wife and two little kids behind, said, if I had to go back and I couldn't have experienced God's love the way I have in this suffering, I wouldn't do it. That's supernatural, guys, because that's what happens when the Holy Spirit regenerates someone's heart. Born-again people are forever followers of Jesus not the fickle crowds who leave him when hard things come. We must be born again. So what does this mean for evangelism? You've just given us a theology of regeneration. Hope I've done that okay. Randall's not here to give me head nods, so I'm a little bit insecure. Um, but, but here's kind of the last point that I, that I think the chapter makes that that does have something to do with evangelism. Back in John 3, starting in verse 9, Nicodemus said to him, how can these things be? Jesus, I don't understand what you're saying. Jesus answered him, are you the teacher of Israel and yet you do not understand these things? Truly, truly, I say to you, we speak of what we know and bear witness to what we have seen, but you do not receive our testimony. If I've told you earthly things and you do not believe, how can you believe if I tell you heavenly things? No one has ascended into heaven except he who descended from heaven, the Son of Man. And just as Moses lifted the serpent into the wilderness, the Son of Man must also be lifted up, that whoever believes in him may have eternal life. For God so loved the world that he gave his only Son, that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. Here's where I think Jesus teaches us that faithful evangelism never fails back to that. Remember we started there? Because see, you see, at the beginning, you see, Nicodemus still didn't get it. And guess what? In this conversation, he ain't going to get it. He's going to walk away without this supernatural work happening in his heart. Does that mean Jesus failed at evangelism here? Jesus told him that, that this knowledge I'm giving you, man, it's from heaven. It makes sense that you can't understand it. But Jesus did faithfully evangelize. I want you to see one thing that Jesus did. He actually pointed in this passage to another faithful evangelist, Moses. 
as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so must the Son of Man be lifted up. So he refers to the story in Numbers chapter 19 that, again, Nicodemus would have recognized. This is when the people were wandering around in the desert, full of sin, full of grumbling, full of complaining, full of no gratitude to the God who just delivered them from Egypt. God sends a bunch of poisonous snakes. They get bitten. They're all laying on the ground dying. God tells Moses to make a bronze snake, to raise it up on a pole, and to tell the people that whoever looks on that snake will be healed. Moses made the snake as God told, and that snake, in a sense, Deuteronomy 21, bore the people's curse. And then he explained to the people what had to happen in order for them to be healed from what was killing them. And what does Jesus do? He says, so must the Son of Man be lifted up. So Jesus connects this Old Testament story to his own work, where he would be lifted up on a cross, where he would bear the curse of sin for his people, and where he would become the only way for forgiveness and healing from the ultimate sickness, sin and death and hell, could happen. And then he says, the verse we all know and love, but often don't read fully, for God so loved the world that he gave his only son, that whoever believes in him will not perish, but have eternal life. Most people in our culture say they believe in Jesus, don't they? Again, at least 70% in the U.S., significantly more here. But belief here does not mean what most people mean by that. The Greek word, the, the Greek word pistuo, it's a word that means the deepest kind of trust. It also carries with it the idea of fully entrusting yourself to somebody. So it's not mere intellectual belief. It's not just the idea of, I believe a few certain facts about Jesus, right? It's the idea of surrender. It's the idea that when someone truly becomes a Christian, what happens is they fully yield themselves to Jesus, just like the Israelites dying on the desert floor. They recognize that Jesus is their only hope of salvation and say, Jesus, I yield myself to you and you alone. Like the old hymn says, nothing in my hands I bring, simply to the cross I cling, right? It also carries with it the idea of repentance. This idea that Jesus no longer am I going to be my own God. I am going to entrust myself to you as my king. You have changed my heart in such a way that I love you, that I want to follow you. And it's a promise. Anyone who believes in Jesus will be saved. That is an absolute promise. But this passage shows us that nobody can do that until the Holy Spirit regenerates their dead heart. That's why in our tradition we've already always said regeneration comes before faith. Faith, believing in Jesus, the result of the Holy Spirit taking out the heart of stone, putting in a heart of flesh. And guess what? Again, no indication that this happened in Nicodemus right here. No indication that Nicodemus surrendered his life to Jesus right here. So was Jesus not a successful evangelist? I don't think so. I think what happened was Jesus shows us what, what successful evangelism is. Two things. Successful evangelism, it's getting the gospel right. 
We've got to get the message right. If we're preaching a false gospel, no hope in that. But he shares the message, right? He shared what he was going to do on behalf of people's sins. He shares about the heart change that had to happen. He shared about the faith that was necessary, right? He got the message right. And the second thing, he got the gospel out, right? Because it's not enough just to know the gospel. It's not enough just to have the right theology of the gospel. Jesus shared with somebody who didn't know Jesus, who didn't follow Jesus. Guys, there's always room to grow in our methods. There's always room to grow in our effectiveness in different ways to share. That's what this conference next weekend is going to be for, okay? But let's just look at Jesus' words as he evangelized here. Successful evangelism is getting the gospel right and getting the gospel out. Someone surrendering their lives to Jesus, man, it ain't dependent on how beautifully you share. It's dependent on the Holy Spirit regenerating their hearts. And whoever, whoever the Holy Spirit regenerates, they will be saved. Jesus goes on to say that later on in John. He says, all whom the Father give me will come to me. They will. Jesus doesn't fail to save anybody that he intends to save. They will come to him. It's irresistible. He takes out the heart of stone. He puts in a heart of flesh. He becomes so precious to them that they can't help but say, yes, Jesus, I'm yours. That has nothing to do with our words. That has everything to do with the Holy Spirit working through our words. And in some mysterious way, the Lord has ordained it to where no one comes to faith without hearing the gospel. Romans 10, faith comes by hearing. Hearing by the word of God. How will anybody hear? How will anybody believe? How will anybody call on him without someone preaching the gospel to them? If you've done evangelism before, you, you know what I'm talking about. You've seen this. We, in, in campus outreach circles, we, we do a little gospel presentation called the Bridge Diagram. It's a really effective old tool that a lot of people have used. I think it's a great tool. I love it. I've shared that thing with hundreds of people since I became a Christian, literally hundreds. And you know what? It always ends with the call. It's like, hey, man, do you want to repent and follow Jesus? You know what most people say? Right. That's cool. Great. And they walk away. No supernatural heart change. But about seven years ago, a little over seven, I'm sitting in Rice Box with a young student named Corbett Kessler, who the Lord had been working on his heart. I share the message like I've always shared it. What an awesome. He just breaks down right there in the middle of Rice Box. He gives his heart to Jesus. It's kind of awkward at the time. But it was amazing. He's told me now sometimes he like takes people to Rice Box just in case there might be some magic there that God works. <laughs> Let me share them. But that's supernatural. I've, I've shared that message hundreds of times. You know how many times that's happened to me? Three. Three times. Because it's a supernatural work of the Holy Spirit applying the Word of God to the heart of sinful man. And if we're faithful to share and the Holy Spirit is drawing, I can guarantee you at some point that person you're sharing with, they will come to faith. For most people, 
being evangelized is a process. They've got to hear the gospel multiple times before their heart actually hears it. For Nicodemus, he doesn't believe right here, but the process has gotten started. And it's a really poetic ending to the book of John, if you know it. Because in John chapter 19, Jesus in the middle of day, not at night, he's crucified. He gives up his spirit and he dies. And you know who comes and takes him off the cross to bury him? Nicodemus. This guy who once came to Jesus by night because he was afraid of what it would cost him. These words of Jesus... And whatever else he heard along the way just left impression after impression after impression. And when Jesus was at the lowest point, literally when he was dead, at the point where just about everybody had left him, here's Nicodemus publicly identifying with him. It's an amazing story of what happens when someone's truly born again. But guess what? Even if Nicodemus had never been born again, I would say Jesus' evangelism still wouldn't have failed. Because the end of evangelism is not the salvation of sinners. The end of evangelism is the glory of God. Ephesians 1.14. And that's why faithful evangelism has a 100% success rate. Because God is always glorified when his people love him and obey him and get his gospel right and get his gospel out. So when that happens, we can know the Father is looking down, pleased, smiling, glorified. Applications. I just want to ask this as we, as we come to a close. Friend and, and church member, are you born again? I'm not asking if you, if you have southern morality or if you have a family heritage or if you had a religious experience at some point. I'm asking, has Ezekiel 36 happened in you? I'm asking, has, has the Holy Spirit done the work in you that you now hate the old man that was opposed to God? And that you now love Christ and desire to know him and follow him. Is Jesus as king not just a great Kanye album, but the core commitment of your heart? Has that happened in you? Are you at peace with your sin? Or are you at war with it? Are you struggling against the remnants of the old man that exists in you? Is that what you hate the most? See guys, membership vows that we take to join a church a religious experience, getting water on our head, external morality, family, zero power to save. Zero power to save. Only the Holy Spirit transforming the heart of the sinner to Christ. And if you're convicted by that, I just want to say this, I'm not calling you to get right. It's impossible for you to get right. That's why Jesus came and lived and died and was raised on your behalf. I'm saying if the Holy Spirit is working in you, to making you grieve the sin in your life and long to know and follow Jesus, cry out in repentance and trust. And the promise is whoever believes in him will not perish, but have eternal life. He will be a good and strong and sufficient Savior for you. Second, just take a minute to marvel in the supernatural work of the gospel. He did all that work on your behalf. He lived. He died. He rose, he ascended, he's promised to return, and at the appointed time, he regenerated your dead heart. He made you born again, he gave you saving faith. And whatever your story is, whether you were a child who literally, he did this so early in you that you never knew a day where you didn't follow the Lord, or whether you came to Christ last week after a life full of regret, less supernatural, anyway, he has saved you 
It is the incomprehensible, supernatural work of grace that we did not deserve, that we did not ask for. The love of our Father, Son, Holy Spirit made us who were once enemies of the throne, heirs with Christ, friends of God, children, servants who love Him with our whole heart. Marvel in that supernatural work that's happened in you. And lastly, I just want to say this. Do you want to be part of this process for other people? Do you want to be part of seeing other people born again? Again, please remember, it is a process for most. It was for Nicodemus. It was for probably all of us, most of us at least. You're not called to be an expert. We're called to get the gospel right and get the gospel out. You might be the person God places in someone's life to kind of be the final straw, and they just break and repent of the spot. Or you might be the first person And you're kind of like a little pebble that gets stuck in someone's shoe. You know how annoying that is, right, when you have a pebble in your shoe? You walk around on it, you feel it, you know it's there, and eventually you've got to address it. You might be someone's pebble in a shoe, right, that eventually is going to lead them to address it. And whether you're that person or whether you're the person that kind of gets to deal with the person, it's all part of that process. So take heart. God is always pleased when we get the gospel right, when we get the gospel out. There are some challenging pieces of cultural Christianity. It's often easy to get stuck when you got people who say they get this over and over again when clearly they don't. We are hoping the conference next week helps with that. So I really do encourage you, if you want to grow in effectiveness, please join us next Saturday. And I'm very hopeful that the Lord's going to use that and use the work of Redeemer Church to draw many Nicodemuses to himself. Let's pray. Lord, I just thank you for the supernatural work of the Holy Spirit in making dead people alive. Thank you that when we were not seeking you, you sought us. You sought me and bought me with your redeeming love. And I thank you, Lord, for everyone in here who knows you. You became so precious to that person that we did not have a choice besides saying yes to you. And Lord, I pray that as as we seek to get the gospel out, Lord, that we would not primarily be worried about giving the best presentation, that we would not be worried primarily, Lord, about saying all the right words, but that we would be trusting in you, that as we share the simple message of Jesus, we would trust you, Lord, to be doing your supernatural work in the heart of all those you are calling to yourself. We commit all this to you, and we praise you for your work. In the strong name of Jesus, amen.